Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. Father Seamus Finn, OMI, has been one of the most vocal and active in getting the Catholic Church to allocate their financial resources toward responsible investment. For the past three plus decades, he has actively engaged the church and mobilized capital for investments that address poverty and climate change. Often looked at as the rock star of the Catholic Church with regard to changing the mindset of the church on investment. This is Radical Truth. So it went off live, so we're back. Um, so I'm going to let uh, Father Seamus tell you a bit about his journey. What has he done? What is he doing? And is the Catholic Church... Good morning, Robert, and thanks for the introduction. And good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to uh, chat this morning and to share some thoughts and then hopefully to also have a lively conversation uh, with uh, the participants. I'm uh, Robert is in Amsterdam and I'm today in New York City, although my home base is uh, Washington, D.C., just a couple hundred miles down the road. Uh, let me begin by just saying a few words about my own history in terms of the investment world, because it's not the world that I grew up in. Uh, I simply uh, to education and joining with the missionary oblates. I was ordained in 1976. I uh, did some work in local parishes in different uh, communities, uh, but uh, we are a congregation, international congregation, that have a presence in about 65 countries around the world. And being that I was working in the United States, we would uh, occasionally get questions from our missionaries in the field, whether they were in Brazil or in Indonesia or in Peru uh, or in South Africa, about uh, the policy of the U.S. government in their particular countries, uh, the behavior of the relationship of the U.S. government with their governments. And then that slowly began to uh, evolve into questions about uh, U.S. branded companies that were in their jurisdictions. So if you were an automobile manufacturer with a factory in Brazil, or if you were an oil company drilling for oil in Peru or in the Amazon, and so that kind of those kind of questions came up naturally within our congregation and questions from uh, the members of the parish. So we decided to look a bit more closely uh, at how we should be responding to those questions. And very simply, I think uh, we were motivated by two things. Uh, first of all, the questions from our colleagues in the field and the questions from our colleagues in the congregation but also the church itself came out with a document in 1971 called Justice in the World. Uh, now, I'm certainly old enough to have been around when that document was uh, published, but it was uh, groundbreaking. Uh, it was a synod of bishops right after the council, uh, which talked about action on behalf of justice needing to be considered as a constitutive dimension of the preaching of the gospel. And it goes on in there to say, that it is difficult for the church to be a credible preacher and witness to justice if it is not seen as an institution that manages its affairs with justice and in mind. And so that was kind of an extra push to start looking uh, not just externally about the work of the church, but internally about the organization uh, of our diocese, the organization of parishes, the participation and voice of those who are members, management of affairs, management of financial affairs, 
management of properties, etc. And it goes on from there. But let's not dwell too much on that. So second and next step along the way was to try for us as a congregation, and I now mean the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, to look internally to say, did we have assets invested in capital markets? Uh, did we own shares in companies? Uh, so there was clearly uh, an opportunity and a time to engage the treasurer's office to say, you know, what do we do with our savings? Do we put it in the bank? Do we buy uh, savings bonds? Do we buy treasury bonds? Do we invest in companies? And so that unfolded a series of conversations whereby it became clear, yes, we did have shares in some of the biggest corporations in the world, uh, whether they were North American or European. Uh, and on occasion, some that were coming from emerging markets, but clearly we had shares in oil companies. We had shares in automobile manufacturing companies, in food companies, and the like. So the issue became, uh, and coming out of the Justice in the World document, uh, was how, are we being responsible owners of those shares? Because we are indeed, if we own a share in a company, a part owner. Uh, very small part, uh, not 10% or 15% as some of the big rollers often are uh, spoken about in the media, but we do have, with ownership, Catholic social teaching is clear, comes responsibility, comes rights, come rights and responsibilities. And so exercising responsible ownership for your property, for your car, for your shares, for your relationships uh, are all part of that package of, of the Catholic tradition. And so that pulled us into looking more closely at the companies we were shareholders in, uh, and beginning to look for other allies whereby we might engage uh, those companies in conversations if we had some issues that we wanted to raise. Uh, that brought into play the work of the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year, by the way, uh, with an organization, an interfaith, interreligious organization that was started to help U.S faith-based investors to address the issue of apartheid in South Africa. Uh, the organization has gone on since then to embrace a wide variety of issues, uh, and we, continue, we, we, are, we are members of that organization with about 350 other institutional faith-based investors, and we operate as a coalition that works together to raise issues with corporations and to bring them to the fore. I should say that the other two points I wanted to make on the larger issue is that in the beginning, much of this work uh, within our congregation and with faith-based groups was coming from the social justice movement of the advocates on the social justice side. It wasn't necessarily coming from the treasurer's office, and it wasn't necessarily coming from the administration or management uh, offices, but from those who were looking at the state of uh, issues in the world and wanting to address them. Secondly, that was the clear issue when one entered into this question about responsibility and responsible ownership. One ran up against the Milton Friedman dictum about financial return, that the fiduciary responsibility of management was to maximize return for shareholders. And that was continually and constantly preached as the, that it, you could not in any way interfere with that perspective that the person who was managing your assets was, uh, that was the priority. We noticed recently, at least on this side of the Atlantic, that the Business Roundtable, which is uh, an association of uh, members of the largest corporations in the country, in 2019, shifted that uh, question to say that they wanted to make a priority stakeholder capitalism and not just shareholder capitalism. This, this continues to cause great debate because it does cause a call into question uh, a really bedrock principle of what some have called fiduciary absolutism. Uh, so that if you take into account the contributions of all the stakeholders, don't you have a responsibility to all the stakeholders as a company? So what about the workers? 
Uh, what about the communities where you operate? What about the environment and the planet and your impact there? So bringing in an whole no a number of other stakeholders into the conversation and saying those need to be included in the in the way in which you calculate what your what your return is. So that's fast forward uh, to where we are today. That is a place that we now find a great number of institutions and a great number of uh, finance managers, treasurers, etc., looking at trying to understand what this stakeholder capitalism means. And that's been pushed forward by a number of uh, a number a number of leaders and a number of advocates. It's clear that Pope Francis has been a game changer in the Catholic tradition. Uh, from this encyclical letter Laudato Si, which addressed many issues, in, but was clearly addressing the issue of the challenge that we face on climate change, on issues around biodiversity, on issues of inclusiveness, on issues of racial uh, uh, on diversity and of issues of development in the less uh, fortunate uh, parts of the world. All of those questions have been put on the table to say, is there a way in which the system in which you participate as an investor can be rewired, can be uh, made to be more inclusive, can uh, talk, can be indeed seen as a more, more conscious of its impact on the environment, on the impact on people's lives, and make a positive contribution to uh, the resolving of some of the very pressing issues that the Holy Father lifts up often in his presentations. For too many in the Catholic community and in Catholic institutions, the vision always was that we could participate in the financial system by investing our assets, smooth over the rough edges of the abuses that were inherent in the system, and through charity and philanthropy, maybe heal some of the wounds and ease the suffering of those who were marginalized. I think in some ways we have hopefully left some of that behind in recent years. And why is that so? That's so because I think, first of all, the United Nations published two sets of uh, of uh, goals in terms of development, the Millennium Development Goals in the year 2000 and the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015, bringing front and center for all of us the question of sustainable development and, and trying to challenge countries and citizens and anybody active in the financial sector uh, to how, uh, what are the ways in which the activities that you are continuing to perform and the policies and practices that you are uh, that you are advocating how can they make a positive contribution to addressing the major challenges that society faces that brought with it two things i think the challenge first of all is was was we understand what the role of government is in promoting development and in being mindful of the development and the well-being of its citizens but the, raises the question of what is the role of the private sector in development? And more specifically, what is the role of the private sector in achieving the sustainable development goals? That presents for some people a question like, is profit-taking compatible with development promotion? And this is no small question. Uh, we've often seen over the decades uh, since the founding of the United Nations in the various decades of development, efforts to transfer wealth through charity and philanthropy from the developed to the developing sectors of the world. And that, res that was an awful, uh, resulted in a number of different programs that focused on water, that focused on education, focused on health, focused on agriculture. But now this game changer was to say, well, what is the role of the private companies who are hugely significant in the world, who have great authority, great power, and great resources, who are operating in, more, in hundreds of countries across the world, is there a way in which they can make a contribution to this resolving these challenges that we face on the areas of development, but also on the pressing issues of the day? 
And I think what you've seen in, I'll finish with this, in recent uh, years is that the number of companies who, pre who previously might have, might have published reports about how well they were fulfilling their responsibility as citizenship, corporate citizenship reports, many of them have now begun to publish ESG reports. They want you to know as a shareholder or as a customer or as a, uh, a member of their, uh, uh, in the community where they operate, they want you to know what contribution they're making to resolving the environmental, social, and accountability issues that we face. And so you'll see more and more of these ESG reports. Alongside of that, it's another way of putting that, it seems to me, is to say they want you to know what their positive impact on the environment and on society and on their employees and in communities is. And they want you to tell you, they want to tell you very specifically about that. They've developed very, very sophisticated metrics uh, where they're able to provide a measurement of the impact of invested dollars on and technology and data uh, to uh, to respond to these challenges. And I think this is a, this is a real good thing. This is also then providing the investor side, uh, because for many years as faith-based and responsible investors, we focused on doing no harm and avoiding evil. And therefore we screened out industries or companies we didn't want to uh, be a part, we didn't want to associate with. Around the year 2000 and with the Millennium Development Goals and since then, there's been a real shift to try and say, well, if we want to stay away from certain industries or certain companies, how do we identify the ones and the projects and the funds that we do want to invest in? And that very much takes us into the field of impact investing. So you've got a whole, a whole number of institutions Lots of energy, lots of folks out there who are eager to say, well, I'd like to invest a portion of my assets in the promotion of uh, small-scale agriculture throughout Africa. Or I would like to uh, invest some of my assets in improving the quality of education in West Africa. Or uh, I'd like to invest part of my assets in trying to help us uh, look for alternative sources of energy so that the world can transition away from fossil fuel. So th there's just uh, hundreds and hundreds of issues out there from water to human rights to biodiversity to climate that investors, individual Catholics, and the institution is looking at very, uh, very closely and uh, actually with their cheerleader, Pope Francis, uh, looking for ways and exploring ways in which to do that. Uh, Vatican itself sponsored four impact investing conferences uh, starting in 2013 and continues to look for ways in which uh, they can identify either projects or uh, practices or vehicles whereby the individual uh, Catholics can participate or individual Catholic institutions uh, can deploy their assets, but also looking seriously at how the Vatican itself may become more closely associated with all those. I'll stop there. Um, you're also, uh, for those that don't know you, um, Seamus is very modest. He's also one of the few investors, or OMI is one of the few investors that actually invests in some innovative fund managers and direct deals. Because I know I've spoken to various fund managers. Oh, yeah, we got money from Missionary Obliots. Everybody else turned us down, and we got money from them. And so it's, they are an, an institutional investor that actually commits their assets to improving society and the environment. But I've heard for 25 years constant new announcement, PRI, and UNIPFI, and all of these aspirational statements. And that's wonderful, the roundtable and all that. But I'm, I'm a simple guy from Brooklyn who just looks at the money flows. Are money flows actually improving society or the environment? And we've seen a lot of 
things happening within the Catholic Church and others. And I heard a statistic. I don't know if it's true that the collective faiths of the world own 8% of all the landmass in the world. Uh, so because some have uh, cash, some have buildings, some have land, some have all of that. So they're very, very powerful. Um, but it seems, I know they think in centuries, but the process seems to go very slow in the actual, let's call it deep impact, real asset allocation. Or am I missing something? And what's happening behind the scenes is far greater than the press. Well, I think two things that are, maybe three things that might be important, Robert, to keep in mind is not only in the Catholic tradition, but in most faith traditions, the ownership of the assets is very decentralized. Uh, so that even uh, the smallest institution is going to have its own investment committee. Uh, and they are going to look at uh, what Pope Francis is saying. They are going to look at the church teachings in terms of trying to manage their assets. But they're also still going to make decisions in terms of what their responsibility is as asset managers or asset owners. So the decentralization feature is important, and that tends to be true of most of the faith traditions that I'm aware of, whether it's at a temple, whether it's at a mosque, or, or, or whether it's at a local congregation. The second thing is that, uh, if you remember, I mentioned in the beginning that many, much of the leadership in this area in my lifetime came from the social justice active, activists, not from the treasurer's office. Uh, and so that's still uh, a bridge that needs to, needs to be uh, uh, addressed. Uh, investment committees are very interesting uh, and very uh, committed groups of people, uh, whether they're managing the assets of the, of the local mosque or the local temple uh, or the local parish. But they tend to be very conservative. And they don't always uh, necessarily take to new ideas very quickly because they're very conscious of the risk that they might be taking with assets that are not their own personally. And so they don't want to be seen as uh, the group that stepped out too far ahead and lost uh, the endowment of the college or the university or the school. Uh, so that that's one piece. And I, I think we've made some good progress on that front, that the professionals in that in this space, and I've met many of them over the years and, 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 and had great conversations with them, they are slowly, I think, recognizing that these very pressing questions that we face uh, are important in terms of the reputation, the brand, and the message of the church. But in our own time, uh, we've got plenty of evidence now that invest, investing in companies that have a good ESG score or investing in companies that are very diligent about protecting human rights and promoting human dignity can actually be good for your returns. Uh, we spent years in the wilderness waiting for data to say that if you put a filter on top of the traditional investment style, if you introduced a question about the environment, uh, about water pollution, about food, about human rights, you were going to negatively impact your return. And I think there is enough data been produced now from the academic circle, but also from the professional research companies to suggest that that's not really true. Uh, Any time you decide to deploy your assets wherever you, you make a choice and you may be uh, t taking a risk, you obviously don't want to take an outside risk, outsized risk, but you are taking a risk. And so the recognition that you put an overlay on top of that, that relates to the sustainable development goals, that relates to a teaching of your faith tradition about human rights or about human dignity or about uh, uh, food or, the, or, or climate change or any of those issues, uh, isn't any riskier than somebody who suggests to you, well, you should put some money into the latest SPAC that's out there, or you should uh, think about this hedge fund or these derivatives as a way in which you can, uh, uh, you know, guarantee your return for the coming year. I've heard this also that um, everybody, when we started, 
doing the work that we did 25 years ago to get buy-in around ESG and impact investing. Everybody said, Robert, that's really interesting. Do you, can you give me research that show there's no underperformance at worst or outperformance at best? I stupidly used to send all the research because there was lots of research. There was, there was no shortage of that. And then I finally had the aha moment and realized this was not about proof. This was about belief. And then I looked at how much research was done on subprime collateralized debt obligation as a risk. I'm sure some obscure university in Manitoba did a paper that nobody read and everybody put money in it. And that's when I stopped sending the research because that was not going to get the buy-in. And, and I see it also with the impact space. Everybody says, well, we need better reporting and all of that. And I find that often an excuse not to do anything. Um, so there's been lots of, and I spoke to asset owners that say, we see research that says it does as well or better. We see research that says it's not so good, uh, but we've decided to do this. This is our belief. So how do we get people, the faith community, let's stick with the faith community mm -hmm. here. How do we get them from, uh, to believe and actually asset allocation. And I know for some, listen, if I've got 5 million hectares of land in Southeast Asia around all the Buddhist temples, I'm not going to sell the land. So, you know, but, that's a different story. It's stewardship. Uh, but there are some with assets. You have massive amount of real estate. Um, what can be done to move that? How do you get the treasurers to pay attention? Well, I, I think I'll, I make two points on this. And I think one is going back to the document that I mentioned earlier uh, in from 1971. And hidden in that document, it says that it is difficult and it will be difficult for the church to be seen as a advocate and promoter of social justice if it's not seen that way in its practice and in its policies. So what that says to me basically is that when somebody says this is the Oblate Fund or this is the Jesuit Fund or this is the, this is the Church of England Fund, when they look at that fund and see what it's invested in, does it reflect the, the, the foundational principles of the church? Does it reflect the foundational principles of the congregation? Does it uh, reflect the, the teachings of the gospel? Uh, and this is a question of, I think, of identity uh, and integrity. It's a question of image and reputation. And it's uh, very much so another way in which one gives witness to or, or, or talks about, you know, what their beliefs are and what their priorities are. So I think one starts there to say that if I took my assets or my portfolio and I put it up on a website and... Uh, showed people what holdings we have uh, and how what we're doing are engaging with those companies or what kind of criteria uh, we use in terms of making decisions about where to deploy assets, would they see some reflection of the oblates in that in those decisions? And I think that's the question now that many church uh, many believers are wrestling with from their very small congregations that may have just a million dollars or maybe even half a million dollars. They want to know that is a portion of that money being clearly deployed in local community projects, uh, in international projects that we care about, so that it is seen as making a positive contribution to the world. And it's not a question here of charity and philanthropy because many of these assets, people are not free to just give them away. They are uh, responsible with for deploying them and for uh, not losing the capital and making some return. But can they do that and at the same time make a positive contribution on some of the pressing issues which are out there? I think some of the amazing things, opportunities that are out there, and I've had a number of these conversations in the last few weeks alone, actually, is for those religious institutions that own that own fixed assets like land, uh, whether it's a thousand acres or a hundred thousand acres, uh, 
other ways in which you can actually, the way you manage that land will speak about your beliefs and your faith. Other ways in which you can monetize the land just by leaving it be. Uh, and when you think about some of the funds that are out there in terms of carbon offsets and wetland offsets and the number of companies today that are needing to buy carbon credits, uh, with, uh, I've seen just some, some amazing uh, research done with satellite technology that actually are able to go and hover over that piece of land and tell you things about it that you would uh, be digging a long time to, uh, to uh, put a research paper together. So can those, can those assets indeed be monetized in a way that we never, we never, uh, never thought about before? We might have thought about grazing cattle or grazing some animals on there or trying to grow things, but there are so many other uh, riches that are in natural capital that's available so this is a, a world that's, I think, exploding before us in the sense of opportunity that we, that we have to, uh, to, uh, to give uh, a message that addresses the biodiversity question, the climate change question, in ways that we never thought about. But the, is, the, you were saying that the treasurers have been the challenge, have been the bottleneck within the faith community where the social justice people we're in you know we want to do this so how do we i'm sure that you know there's not a big public database of every all the treasures of of the faith community and i'm sure asset managers are desperate to get a hold of each one of them how do you get access to them to start changing the mindset or is that already happening and we're kind of just trying to catch up I think it's happening. It's happening in 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 small steps. There are a number of associations. Most of them are around uh, individual countries rather than regions. Uh, uh, they may be around uh, faith-based uh, CFOs and the like. Uh, but I think what you're also seeing is that there are some. You know, my, my experience in this over the last 40 years has been quite often when the treasurer or when the, the, the faith-based person goes to a professional asset manager or custodian and says, I'd like to do this. They give you 10 reasons why it's too risky or why you can't do it or why they don't have the product. Then all of a sudden when you go and say, well, I'm going to find somebody who can do it for me, or they'll say, oh, I heard of something in our back office. And let me show you that. It's like the shoe salesman. You know, you go in and you know what kind of shoes you're looking for. And he brings out or she brings out five different pairs and none of them quite take your fancy. And you say, well, I better I'm looking for something a little different. And they finally go in the back room and bring out what you were looking for. So uh, I think that is much more happening in terms of the professional asset manager and asset class that much of my experience in this arena is customer-driven and it's client-driven. The more clients that ask for these things, the more customers that come and say, I want to put this pot of money into this fund or into this region or to address this issue, um, they'll be creative and innovative in ways that uh, uh, they might have been hesitant to put before you previously. So, I, I, and I look, treasuring, being CFO and being treasurer is a big responsibility for any institution. And we know now with markets that trade 24 hours a day, seven days a week around the world, uh, you can lose a lot of money very quickly uh, if you push the wrong button or if you make the wrong decision and you don't have a lot of time to, uh, to make it up. So, I, I think the weight of that responsibility uh, is, I think, being buffeted a little bit now by some of the some of the tools and some of the suggestions that people are making, uh, and not overnight. I mean, the Holy Father uh, Pope Francis, when he met with the oil and gas industry twice in, I believe it was two sixteen and two eighteen, he said, "Look, this is a question of a transition from fossil fuels to alternative energies. We, what we disagree on probably is the length of the transition." I want you to do it very soon. You have all kinds of reasons why it's going to take time to do it. Let's talk. 
And I think the, that's, the, that's the challenge that the financial industry, the treasurers, the investment committees face. Do they have a vision of where they want to be? And are they able to outline the steps to get there? And are they measuring, uh, measuring how they're achieving uh, uh, those steps on a quarterly basis, on an annual basis, and uh, revising them as needed? But I'm very hopeful on this front that uh, there's a, a lot of energy out there uh, by, for folks who are really putting their shoulder to the wheel on this. Okay. We have actually two mic requests. I'm going to start taking them. Uh, so, Sean, let's see if you're still with us over here, uh, that you'll join uh, the podium. If not, then I'll go to the, the next. Oh, yeah, there we go. Sean, no selling, educate. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, yeah, no, thank you so much. Uh, maybe just a comment and a, and a question, but... Uh, first, I'd say this is uh, probably one of the best overviews I've seen of ESG investing. So thank you. Um, and the comment was, you know, I was just reading um, Goldman Sachs um, ESG uh, report, and it was showing how uh, stock prices in public companies are starting to be affected a little bit more by by ESG ratings. And so I'm personally not worried about um, more people thinking about this. I think we're already past the point where anybody who's not thinking about this is 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 anxious about it. Um, I hope that was my education piece, I guess. Um, my question is, uh, you know, I'm focused on on deploying the giving pledge funds. Um, and there's, you know, about 600 billion in unused money. Um, and, and when you start looking at PRI, most of the PRI is done at the venture level, kind of smallish deals here and there. Let's help this happen. Um, I've started to look at it at the, at the buyout level just because that's my background. And we're looking at, you know, how do we do private deals that can't be done like a, um, you know, publicly traded energy company that has a project for 500 acres of solar just to make something up. But there's 10 million of costs that is just keeping it from being green lighted by the board. And that's 10 million of philanthropy that can be blended in there. And you have a massive project that can take place. But the interesting thing is we're looking at ones that you can replicate a thousand times. Um, and so sure. that's a much more efficient way to develop. My question is, is are people looking at um, detailing solutions and creating plans to actually get there versus just incremental good? Like we're doing a little bit on this STG. We're getting a little bit of here. We're doing, but is anybody actually like quantifying sort of some of the substance? This is exactly what we need to get there. Thank you. Well, I would, I would, I think I'd have two comments I, I, that, you know, I mean, the question always is, uh, has been in, in, in the, in the private equity space or in some of the spaces that you were talking about is, you know, uh, are there enough projects out there? Are there, are they of a big enough size where they can absorb the kind of capital we're talking about? And do the people on the ground have the technical know-how and training uh, and facility to be able to absorb this kind of capital. And obviously then one gets into blending investment ca invested capital with philanthropy to try and make it work. And so I think there's a huge education gap, but I think that's being closed. I think there's an, a lot of work on the ground that I'm familiar with in Africa uh, that local bishops, local dioceses, religious congregations who have an international footprint. In other words, for instance, we're in about, I think we're in about 22 countries in Africa. So that gives us uh, some boots on the ground in terms of being able to identify some issues, some projects, and some folks who uh, are beginning to try and put uh, some of this together. So uh, that's a, a slow process. And uh, I think the issue has at least as it, as it presents itself, is to say, are there other partners that we can engage on this? Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the biggest pushes, and I alluded to this in my presentation, is what could be the role of the private sector in addressing the challenges of development, whether it's around food, healthcare, education, or whatever in Africa? Immediately, that raised a set of red flags for those who are professionals in the development world. Because immediately when you say the private sector, you're saying profit. 
and you're saying uh, somebody is not giving the money in a charitable philanthropic way, but they want to invest it. Uh, they don't want to lose the capital. Uh, and they are looking to make a contribution. Uh, and so having and engaging more deeper conversations with the development community, I think is really important. When you think of the number of official government development agencies across Europe, the United States, North America, Japan, etc., that have existed now for decades, uh, they have slowly begun to turn the dial and say, we've got less in our budget to actually give you, but we'd like to loosen up some of the capital that we could loan to you or we could invest in your projects or in what you're trying to do. And we just need some tools and some mechanisms of whereby to do that. I think this is the big, the big shift at the UN on the sustainable development goals. There's a whole section in the UN document on the sustainable development goals that's, that talks about, that talks about bringing in the private sector. Uh, and so you've got a natural ally, it seems to me, with a global institution like the United Nations, some of the official development agencies that are, that are out there, and also some of the faith-based uh, and non-official development agencies. Uh, they are still looking for capital. They're still trying to find the best ways to respond to the needs that are in front of them every day, whether it's refugees, migrants, hunger, uh, education. And so I think pulling in some of those folks into the conversation, I think, is, is one of the ways in which the church and faith-based groups uh, can make a, a, an added contribution. They not only bring some capital or, in your case, of the giving uh, pledge uh, capital that's there, but it also brings in, you know, some history, some experience, some know-how uh, that is really important in, in, in deploying uh, capital in these areas. Sean, I'm going to have to go to the next one. Thank you very much for grabbing the mic. Uh, Shane, you wanted to say something. Are you, are you still there with us? There we go. Okay. Shane, you're up. Hello from the UK. Um, I'd like to make a cynical comment here. Um, introduce a turn of cynicism, if you like, uh, and take a leaf from the advertising industry, which for ever and a day has uh, based its message on fear, fear of missing out, fear of being lonely, fear of looking ugly, fear of not finding a partner, and so on and so forth. And wonder, therefore, if in advancing uh, impact investing and ESG consciousness, uh, this uh, element of fear might not be put to greater use. Uh, for example, if you're a pension fund trustee or you're a fund manager marketing to retail investors, you will or should be aware that the millennial generation is the biggest generation since the boomers and is therefore your growing customer base. If you don't address it, you have a business risk and you should be afraid of that. Uh, likewise, if you're any kind of business and you disregard your stakeholders, you have a reputation risk and you should be aware of that and do something about it. And finally, of course, in the whole issue of climate change and global warming, it's an existential risk. If you don't do something about it, the world ends, full stop, and you better do something about it. So, uh, yes, on the one hand, you can show it generates better returns. You can feed all kinds of research on people. But ultimately, and as we know from the least recent political developments here and elsewhere, giving people the facts is not going to change their opinion. But making them fearful of what might the outcome be, that certainly has been very effective politically in advertising, and maybe also an investment in ESG. Okay. Doesn't the Catholic Church have experience with building up some fear among people? Fear of God, indeed. I didn't want to go there, but, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 no, it's, it's, it's definitely an important motivator. And it is, you know, I, it look, the number of, uh, you know, pensioners and the number of, of people my age who come and say, well, I'm seriously concerned about this because my grandkids brought it up to me and they tell me that if I don't pay attention. So there are a number of different motivators that come into this. Uh, and I think fear of uh, what uh, the scientists and others are telling us about the future that we face and generations after us face, I think is, is really important as well. Good. 
Thank you, Shane. Okay. Uh, John, you wanted to ask or say something. I would love to there say something. Good morning. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Father Seamus. Hey, John, how are you? Good. I'm doing good, man. How are you doing? Doing very well. All right. It's very good to see you. We're long overdue for a catch-up. I'll reach out to you. Uh, here's my question, Father Seamus. Yeah. I had the honor of attending several an impact conferences some years ago, and I came away impressed with the humility of Cardinal Turkson and others on asking people involved in impact on the business side to teach the church, those that were attending, business, to discover an intersection between business and the, and the Catholic church, the faith. Um, that still strikes me as a challenge for the church, the priests, the, the people working there. Very few have business training. And so I'd love to hear your ideas on ways to cross that bridge. And with the creation of that bridge, my guess is the capital flows faster. Yeah, no, I, I, look, I, I think I think you're right, John. I think it's it's. Some of this goes back to a little bit of the suspicion that I spoke about earlier in terms of business and profit and how that relates to what the work of the church is. But I know in our own congregation, I could list off the top of my head 10 uh, amazing entrepreneurs, whether it was in Canada or Haiti or other parts of the world, that you know, after they found a language to speak and wherever they were living, First things they started thinking about was cooperatives. And second thing they were thinking about was credit unions. And it could be cooperatives about honey. It could be cooperatives about coffee. But they recognized that there were some basic foundational principles that in terms of the way one builds an enterprise uh, that fit very well with the community dimension of what the church is talking about, that we care for one another that we look out for uh, the, the, the well-being of the community, that we care for the land. I think that has now expanded, uh, as you mentioned, in the, with the lens of Cardinal Turkson and Pope Francis, to say, are there, you know, how do we get and transfer the knowledge that's in the business community and their experience into, you know, the ways in which many of the church enterprises uh, are run? We've done it. Mostly, in my estimation, if I think of educational colleges and universities, by putting you know business people on the board of trustees or on the investment committee, and it's a very much of a financial conversation, and it's about how do you raise more capital for the next building or for the next program, and how do you continue to perpetuate or to increase that over time? Wouldn't that be? It seems to me if you bring in. Uh, some of the conversations that we see going on today, for instance, in some of the boardrooms with Danone, the European company, that said, yes, uh, we, are, we, we may want to explore being a public benefit corporation. We do value ESG. Uh, so bringing in some of that uh, exp experience into those conversations, bringing some of that to the local bishop to say, um, in terms of Let's have an open conversation about the organizational structure of your diocese and how it's managed. Don't want to change it. This is an open conversation about how it reflects the values of the gospel and how indeed it might be improved. Because uh, it's amazing to me, and I only touch a very small piece of this. It's amazing to me the ingenuity and the innovation that's happening out there with data, with satellites, uh, with uh, folks that are... Uh, I think if we learned anything in this coronavirus period of, you know, the, the number of dedicated researchers and scientists that are out there uh, looking at, you know, this issue and trying to uh, bring answers and bring recommendations forward across the world. And in such a quick amount, fast amount of time that they were able to provide some global collaboration on this. So it seems to me the Vatican is trying to do this and hopefully will continue to do it. Uh, and hopefully we can help them to uh, 
up their game on it because I think it's it's a real it's a conversation and a collaboration that needs to happen more often and needs to be improved because I think uh, the Church of England has been great on it as well with some of their work on just transition from fossil fuels to alternative energy uh, to solving the issues of uh, tailings dams uh, and eliminating those catastrophes from any kind of mining enterprises around the world so. Uh, I really think there are some great things that can happen in this arena. Thank you, Father Seamus. Thank you, John. Uh, Jyoti also had a comment from North Star. I think it's um, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk Space Company. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) North Star Transition is not a Jeff Bezos... uh, uh, company, but thank you for the uh, for sharing the mic and and thank you, Father Seamus, for an, uh, for a fascinating insight into this world of ESG and impact. Um, one of your earlier questioners said, uh, you know, focus on fear, and I I understand the fear of of God is the beginning of wisdom. So I'm afraid I have very little to share with you in terms of wisdom, but I have had uh, around 20 years of experience in impact investing. And I've I've come to the place where I feel that uh, uh, much of what we see with impact is about uh, industries where where there's not enough alpha for the investors who just go seeking alpha. Mm -hmm. So we're not getting those kind of people coming in. The margins aren't strong enough for that. And it, and then you add into the idea of a lower margin, you add in the idea that actually you need to share the the outcomes more equitably because that's what you're trying to do with impact. You're you're trying to shift uh, who gets the benefit, and so so you get to a place where you're investing in a company that's doing fantastic things. The people are doing amazing things. The returns are fairly modest because it's not the alpha environment. It's a, you're sharing out some of what's coming in. And actually, the question that has bothered me all the way through this and has uh, you know surfaced much more for me now is that this doesn't shift the system. The system remains as it ever was. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, Robert mentioned North Star Transition. Our, our goal is now asking the question, how do you shift the system? How do you shift from a degenerative system, which even impact investing is living in a degenerative world? How do you shift it to a regenerative or whatever other description you want to use that is actually a more healthy um, uh, healthy world to live in? Yeah, no, I look, I totally agree with you that we've 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 got a number of things. What if, you know, what if the investor in the conversation is opening their screen or opening their envelope on a quarterly basis or an annual basis and not only looking for financial return on their investment? You know, can I hold my head high when I go to my coffee meetings or my discussion clubs, et cetera, and say, well, we got 5%, but let me tell you about the social return. Let me tell you about the environmental return. Let me tell you about the land that we have regenerated. Let me tell you about the employees who have a little more access now to education for their children. So what if that becomes the standard in terms of us asking uh, uh, companies and funds to report not only the financial return, and because we revert to that always, and I agree with you. So the system does need to recalibrate. And the Holy Father, in his writing to the young economists who were gathering in Assisi last October, the phrase he used, which I like, is he said, we must figure out a way to rewire capitalism. And if you think of the wiring in the electrical wiring or the computer or Ethernet wiring in your house and the planning that goes into that, when you try to figure out, you know, all of the inputs that you want and all of the outputs that you want from that rewiring, what does the system look like when you include in that rewiring, you know, social and environmental questions? 
Uh, and I think that's what, what I see happening in the bigger conversation, that you've got some companies that have been willing to step out. Uh, they are criticized by some of their investors. They're supported by others to say, we want to tell you about, you know, how we're making our yogurt better. We want to tell you how we're making a better product and not uh, using uh, chemicals that will, uh, you know, abuse the earth or just or pollute the water or affect your health or the health of your family significantly. So I think more and more of those questions will slowly begin to say and get to the question of, well, what is the what is the optimal growth that you're looking for? Is are you looking to maximize the growth? Are you looking for the optimal growth? And I think we have to make distinctions between those two and feel good internally and feel good uh, and at peace with the way we've done business in the process. And I, I think that uh, that's an in, that's a value and that's that's an additive that many people uh, would really like to have in their lives uh, as they as they continue to 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 pursue their goals. Thank well, you. Thank you for sharing. It's a, it's a, it's a conversation I suspect that will never stop. No, no, that's, that's good. That's what, that's the nature of who we are, right? We've got to continue to turn over some more rocks and some more stones and see what perseverance is doing up there in Mars and check in on those cameras and imagine, imagine what a future is out there. At least I do. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Paul, you wanted to also say something are you there paul yeah no okay all right i guess not okay so i will uh coming towards the end i want i did want to take a couple of questions oh now now he's back okay Can you grab accounting and financial reporting standards to eliminate externalities? That would be a, that would be nirvana. I mean, we would already be on Mars. Uh, and I mean, this is this is a, a goes back to the previous comment. This is an area where you know, in the accounting business and in 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 the the, the folks who are setting those standards, they do indeed need to start adding some extra columns that includes that kind of data. And I think the only way, as I said earlier, the only way we begin to get some of those reports is as, if, as customers and clients, we ask for them. Um, We've got pension funds. Look at look at the data that pension funds are requesting these days from their asset managers and from the companies that they invest in. Whereas previously, they were very concerned about the financial uh, responsibility that they were taking on in terms of having assets to, 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 to pay pensioners when it came due. They are now very much concerned about uh, what's going on with the environment, what the future looks like. They do want the data. Uh, they want it broken down into ways that they can understand it and that they can share it with their participants. Albert had a question. Which obstacles need to be removed to ensure the transition to a more action-oriented shift of capital allocation and measures of risk? Well, I, I suppose, it, you know, a very easy one, uh, there are a number, but I think a very easy one is, you know, what, what, we've, what we measure, we value. And I, I keep going back to this, that, you know, uh, whether it's the Bloomberg or so, the CNBCs or, all, uh, or the Sky News or any of the mass media that's out there, they're pouring information, their information at us every day. And I think we need to continue to insist that, they're expanding and teasing and stretching that information to tell us, you know, what's the impact on the quality of air in Amsterdam today? How is the, how is the business and the commerce that's going on or the financial transactions that are happening, how is it impacting the condition uh, of the livelihood of children in Yemen? 
I think, you know, if we're able to send satellites up there to do the kind of things I talked about earlier in terms of uh, measuring the quality of the land below and into depths of three and four or five meters, we ought to be able to construct uh, standards and metrics uh, that give us the kind of information that will help us to address these pressing social issues. Whereas right now, most of it is numbers, and there are numbers that are, you know, connected with money and financial return. What if you take a, a, whole, a whole section of that reporting and bring it into uh, the kind of issues, the kinds of topics, the kinds of uh, challenges uh, and uh, needs that people have in their daily lives in terms of food, water, uh, transportation, etc., and actually begin to uh, respond in a way that is sustainable and that sees a future that can be, we can talk about 2050 and we can talk about uh, 2075. Uh, Deidre wanted to grab the mic. I'll try to come back to Paul in a second. Deidre? Hello, Father Finn. Great to meet you. I'm a huge oh, advocate what? of Laudato Sea in Ireland and a massive um, supporter of the divestment movement here. And I'm delighted to share with the first country that has divested from fossil fuels. But I'm very aware of our infrastructure here in Ireland and our superb nuns who've done majestic work um, entertaining, educating and bringing youth and younger voices to the table. But I'm a bit surprised that there's a lack of support for the females still within the church. So on behalf of the, the women of the world who are the most affected by climate change, this conversation is not reflecting the injustice on the women working the fields, on the women hunting the water and hunting the wood. So with the assets of the church, I'm just wondering, for example, can we have one pilot parish? I've done my damnedest on our local parish to bring this to the conversation. I even set up um, a local market. I've set up a local uh, lottery office to have a local IT infrastructure for the parish. But Father, the issue is that the women are still being the victims of climate injustice, not being paid. Even the real estate of the church can be shared, for example, very readily with others who are homeless. Or let's pick one parish. I'll challenge you to pick one, one, one parish. Eco up the parish, make it green. We have super eco congregations in Ireland that do great work, mainly women unpaid at the top. And you are talking in, in, in the figures of billions here. I ask all your asset managers, what percentage of fees are they taking? Could a percentage of that money be given to the women on the ground that are being hurt by the lack of water, lack of resources, lack of jobs. These are very, we're not talking about sending rockets up to Mars here. I'm talking about very elementary. Well, we are in favor of sending rockets to Mars too, I hope. Uh, well, let's send water to schools and children <laughs> and right. girls to the classroom first, and then let's go to Mars, Father. All right. Well, yes. I don't have a lot of influence in the Irish church because I left Connie Cork more than 50 years ago, but I, I sympathize with the issues that you raise. And uh, I think we have to continue to try and keep working on them. And the, the same reality is true over here. It's the women's congregations within the Catholic community that have led the way in the work that I do. Uh, and they are the ones who have come up with some of the great innovations and creating some of the great projects. So um, it, as Robert said in the beginning, it, that rock put, that, that we're pushing up the hill, I hope it's not getting bigger and I hope we're getting it further up the hill. So you mentioned measurements, and I put in the chat, the Sustainable Development Goal results for Europe have just come back. The two issues that I'm strongly advocating for, inclusion of women, action on climate, we have regressed in Ireland. We're the worst in Europe. So I'm suggesting strongly that we continue this conversation in one pilot, one pilot parish that you can copy-paste to all your parishes. Very good. Thank you much. You're welcome. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Deirdre. Okay, Paul, last chance to try to get you to grab the mic. Still no? No. He, appear, right. he appears every now and then, but he uh, doesn't seem to grab that microphone. All right, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to start to wrap up and take final questions. Uh, Paul, 
parish or you oh, yeah patrick Mc, uh, mcavilly said uh, hi father seamus are you familiar with the homeboy industries in los angeles started by father greg it started in 1988 yes. and is employment and, and, and can you share a little bit about what what that is? Well, it's an effort by Father. It's Greg Boyle, I believe. It's, it's an effort whereby he has tried to put together a number of small enterprises to uh, interest and to engage uh, young uh, teenage uh, folks, uh, young men in this case, uh, give them the kind of training and educational background where they can go on to create some enterprises, uh, and it's been very successful. I mean, it's uh, it's well uh, well known here in the states, and uh, uh, a, a number of uh, folks uh, that I'm aware of are quite supportive of it. Okay, I uh, I'm cognizant of the time, and I don't want to take up a lot of your uh, time. We, I think we've covered most of the questions. Uh, there are no one grabbing the mic now, so I'm going to wrap up. So what I'd like to do is just take a group selfie with everyone here. So the only thing you have to do is look in the camera and say hello. And uh, and then that the system will connect, ever, will take all of the photos of everyone, and then I will send a copy of that. We will send everyone a link to the replay. And also, um, Father Seamus has given us a list of activities and things that they're involved in. If you want to join the selfie, just do that. I want to thank uh, quite a few people who were instrumental uh, in making this um, seminar. Sam, our producer, crypto genius and ramen critic. Ricky, my absolute better half with no filter. Xi Jinping, who is head of transparency and integrity. The Myanmar generals are our power sharing advisors. Alexander Lukashenko, voting ethics professor, Jeff Bezos, human resources and full tax compliance leader, Ted Cruz, our sedition expert and humility mentor, Yoweri Museveni, director of fair elections monitoring, Marjorie Taylor Greene, our astronomer specializing on Jewish lasers, and Elon Musk, our humility coach. Thank you all for your contribution. And thank you all for coming. And I hope to see you next week. And Seamus, thank you so much for being very engaging. For those of you who are still listening, Seamus is very accessible and very down to earth. So if you want to do something with the church, please reach out to him. He's quite accessible. Thank you, Seamus, very, very, for all of the hard work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Great. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you to our guest and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe.